As a child of the 80s, this is the second pandemic my generation has lived through. The first was, of course, the AIDS pandemic. The generation who grew up in the 70s has a completely different relationship to sexuality than my generation does. As a kid, I was, caught, I was taught that having sex was risking death, and of course it was. Now as a parent, I can see the trauma of that experience impact my own parenting. Right now, as of this recording, there are over 617,000 deaths worldwide from the current pandemic. My children are coming of age in a time where being less than six feet from a person might kill them and might kill the people they love. This is an ongoing traumatic experience for them. I don't know what the long-term effects will be for them and their peers, their whole generation, but I do know that what's happening now will probably be the most defining event of their generation. We know that effective learning must very often be a social experience. Oh, but what happens when the social experience is also a potentially deadly experience? How might this trauma play out for our kids? And what does it mean for how they might parent their kids? I'm Jason Gorman, and I'm very excited about this episode of An Imperfect Map. In this interview, I talk with Elizabeth Wilcox, who's the author of the upcoming book, The Long Tale of Trauma. The book will come out in November with Greenwriters Press and is a look at the inheritability of trauma and its effects across three generations of women, ending with Elizabeth's own mother. I read the book and loved it and recommend you pre-order it today. Check out the show notes for a link. The story is honest and raw and gave me a lot to think about with regard to our current situation and the future it could create. Elizabeth Wilcox, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So personal history is, is really important to your story. And uh, maybe the best place to start here is just by asking you a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, I am a writer, obviously, and I began my career as a reporter and a freelance journalist. I worked in London, Hong Kong, and New York, uh, across all three media. I started as a newspaper columnist, moved into radio and then television for CNBC television as a producer, and then ultimately into the web. Um, my Interestingly, I, I think that my work has largely reflected kind of where I am in life stage. Early on in my career, I worked as a, a business journalist, and, um, and then I actually started an online career magazine for 20-somethings, moving then into writing a book called The Mom Economy, which looked at um, what made for family-friendly work, and I interviewed hundreds of women um, for that, and then ultimately moved, as my children got older, more into education, writing about education and developing content around education, and now currently I work for, really with two nonprofit, well, one's a nonprofit organization, um, the other one's uh, just an educational organization, and uh, the first of which provides training and in trauma-informed practices for underserved populations, 
So basically underserved youth and incarcerated populations. And the second one provides training, research, and advocacy uh, in early childhood. So you've done all of this work and learning um, about trauma. And I know that you are not necessarily a psychiatrist, but this has become a, this is a, a real interest to you and it's the focus of your book. We're going to talk about the structure of your book. Um, but I'd really love to just start with, you know, based on all the things that you've learned in your writing about trauma, um, what cautions or concerns do you have now about parenting? And specifically motherhood, your, your book really focuses on the mother-daughter relationship. Um, you know, under the extreme circumstances that we're in right now, we have this pandemic raging, there's social unrest. Um, what are the cautions and concerns you, you have about the lasting effects of trauma that we might be thinking about or we should be thinking about? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the caveat that I'm not a psychologist, but the two organizations that I've been working for and with for the last four or five years are run by psychologists. So I've become sort of well entrenched and ensconced in a lot of literature uh, around trauma as well as early childhood development. And um, one thing I, I think I've learned through the writing I've done around this uh, for my organizations that, that I've been contracted with is, is really the importance of being sensitive to the legacy that trauma leaves, and um, in particular, uh, the impact that trauma can really have on, on children and, and the lasting impact that it can have. And, and if we think about that during COVID-19, the results of COVID-19 will be that many children experience trauma, whether it be financial health, uh, nutrition, loss, uh, a lot of children in you know, underserved areas, for example, not going to school, um, that's a safe haven. And, and now they're at home uh, in not as a, they're not getting the food and, and the nutrition that they would normally get, perhaps. Um, and they're all different sorts of aspects of, of the trauma, which will have an impact on them. And then also thinking about the the parents of those children as well who have had trauma and um, how this situation may be a trigger for them and it may be forcing them to deal with or not deal with the trauma that they've faced in the past and how that will impact the dynamic between the children and their parents as well, um, which ultimately will impact the children as they get older. So I think there's there is going to be a long and lasting impact of, of COVID-19 as well as um, some of the kind of other unrest that, that is occurring in, in tandem to that. Um, so, yeah, and I think as a parent and as a person, um, whether or not we are experiencing trauma to the extent that some are, we need to be really sensitive to the fact that a lot of these kids are going to be going back to school, having experienced trauma, and if and there are a lot of parents out there who are being triggered right now and experiencing, re-experiencing past trauma as well as experiencing current trauma, and we have to try to be empathic and understand um, that 
there is a lot of struggle right now. And I'm wondering if you might be able to read something from your book where you talk about um, you talk about the trauma that your family in in your family. Um, it is a, a wonderful, complex um, narrative that really follows multiple generations um, in your family. Is there something that you could read that that talks about um, that talks about this this topic and maybe give us an idea of how the book handles it? Sure. Um, so I think what I'll read is a excerpt which um, looks at my grandmother, Violet, who was born in 1904, illegitimately, in England. And she spent the first six years of her life being raised by two spinster aunts. And then um, she was somewhat abruptly or very abruptly uh, pulled at age um, six to live with her biological mother. And she was moved from an area of Rickmansworth where she was leading, I think, a middle-class life. She, she sp often spoke to my mother of that period as being a really happy childhood um, and sort of suggested that she was relatively well off then. And then she moved into the East End of London, age six. Her mother was a German house servant and her, her now stepfather was a German Jew. And so this is 1910. There's a lot of um, anti-immigration, anti-Semitism. Uh, anti so she was this English kind of middle-class girl, and suddenly she's living with Germ lower-class Germans and associated with them in, uh, in a very poor situation. So I tried to think a little bit about how that would have felt for both her as a child and uh, for her mother. So this is that section. Violet's acceptance of her new life took longer than Anna had hoped. Anna is the mother, Violet's the daughter. That first year, there were so many times when Violet would have an outburst over the most innocuous of things, a lost sock, too many nuts on her cake. Violet's little face would flush and she would scream or run from her mother as if in need of an escape. At such times, Lewis would shrug, knowing better than to get involved. Let her be, he would say, when Violet was particularly uncontrolled. And in time, Violet would return, composed as if nothing had transpired between them, the past forgotten again. Give her time, Lewis would say. For as composed as Violet often was, both Anna and Lewis could see that Violet's forbearance was an armor to the struggle within her. So Anna waited, always reminding herself that her daughter no doubt missed her home in Rickmansworth, her pampered life, the attention and sense of belonging she once got. She reminded herself that her daughter's attitude was to be expected, and that, in fact, given her change in circumstances, she was surprisingly restrained. Violet never commented on that single worn couch or the stench in the narrow stairwell that connected all six flats or the brazen woman above who entertained loud men in her flat at all hours of the night. Yes, she did carry in her a persistent and silent refutation evident in almost all that she did in the unexpected check of her small head in response to what Anna had thought was a benign remark, or in the stiff way she carried herself through the dirty streets of her overcrowded school. Admittedly, Anna sometimes found her daughter's aloofness difficult to bear, but she accepted what she saw for what she decided it had to be, 
a means for her daughter to cope. She tried not to feel hurt. She kept no record of the wrongs. Maternal love, she knew, was a love so different from all else, so vast and infinite, with no start and no end. It was a love that since her daughter's birth, she had carried in every cell of her body, and having Violet home in the flesh was a visible rematerialization of what she had so long held, eternal in space, divine in the true sense, patient and kind, protected and trusted, hoped and persevered, forgiving, just like they said. And then I'll just read you quickly the chapter end. In May of 1915 came the news that the Lusitania had sunk. A German U-boat struck the liner down, and within 18 minutes of being hit by a single torpedo, over a thousand passengers and crew lost their lives. In the days that followed, even deeper hatred set in. The, the Germans were going to pay. The newspapers published images of mass graves in Ireland where many of the bodies from the Lusitania had washed ashore. Rioting began, and the shops, businesses, and homes of anyone believed to be German came under threat. Lewis barricaded his shop. The very next day, a brick knocked in the front window of a pork butcher shop and a crowd wrecked the place, smashing everything suggestive of Germany. Then the government announced full-scale internment for all men of German descent between the ages of 17 and 55. Within a few days of the announcement, Lewis reported to the local police and was detained for a night in a prison cell. Anna and the children visited Lewis in jail. Anna brought him a book. Violet hugged him told him that she loved him, that he was the best father a girl could have, and cried unabated. Only four years before, Anna would have welcomed such a vulnerable display of love. Not so anymore. Violet's hard shell had completely dissolved like sugar in rain. This is a rich imagining of your grandmother as a child, your great grandmother as a as a mother in a kind of circumstance that's, I mean, for me, impossible to imagine. Um, I, you mentioned before that that your work, the work that you've done in your career, has kind of has paralleled um, your other interests. It's kind of your your life, or that your life circumstances have kind of driven your interests in your work. And I'm really interested uh, in understanding more about how, how your background and the work that you've done uh, and the kind of twists and turns in your own life led you to this book. Why this book? How did this, why was this the book you needed to write? Well, my mother has long wanted me to write the story of her childhood and her mother's life as well. And I had long thought that the story would be a simple autobiography or a bi biography rather of my mother and my grandmother. And um, in the last four or five years, as I mentioned, I've been working in uh, trauma-informed care and early childhood development. And in that work, I, I've learned quite a lot about children's development and how trauma can impact development. Um, and that there are really some long-term impacts to, to trauma. And so at the same time as I'm learning all of this, 
I am age, I'm 52 right now, and, and I am in my late 40s as I start to learn this. And I have a mother who really suffers from PTSD. And I, I begin to learn through my work that I have to separate the, the, the trauma, the effects of the trauma that my mother has from the person herself. Uh, this organization that I do some work with, the Lionheart Foundation, they often speak to the mask of trauma and how we have to look past the mask of trauma and we have to get to the core self. And if you look at uh, children who have experienced trauma at a very young age, uh, adverse childhood experiences is, is something that is commonly called now, they're called ACEs. Uh, there are some very real long-term effects, which my mother exhibits. So, for example, they may not be able to develop enough, uh, a, a sort of more, a full sense of self-regulation. So, when you're really young, you, you quote-unquote, co-regulate with the parent. But if you don't have that experience when you're very young, you don't have a harder time developing self-regulation. So, my mother can have a hard time developing self-regulation. Um, and then there are other things, competencies that you develop as a young child, which I've learned through my work that my mother falls short of. Um, and I, I really had to come to understand that, that my mother, it was the trauma talking often with her or the trauma manifesting. And so it allowed me to begin to understand my mother in a different way. And so as I wrote this book and I was looking at uh, my mother's history and my grandmother's history, I really felt like I couldn't, it would be unjust to um, ignore the impact of trauma on my mother and who she is. And I had to get at who my mother was um, when she was or rather who my mother is and who she was, and then try to, if you will, separate um, the trauma from my mother. So the biography became more, too, of a memoir because also related to that is my relationship to my mother and me trying to understand my mother. Um, so it's, it sounds a little bit complex. Um, and in fact, it was kind of a complex, but uh, my work was really informing the way that I recorded the history of my mother and my grandmother. Adverse childhood effects. Um, it's fascinating in the book, which of course I've read, um, to be able to uh, read such a frank uh, discussion about your own, your own family, the kinds of experiences that they had and also how, how those experiences affected their children and how that affected their children. Um, it, you have taken a very unconventional approach in this, the structure of this book. And I, I, think it's, I think it's important and I really enjoyed it. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to the structure and why it's important to tell the story about trauma in the way that you have told it in your book in such a personal way. Yeah, so, so really my book has a dual timeline. So ever since I was in my 20s, my mother has been sharing her past with me, which is very different from her mother who never shared her past with her, except to say that 
from the age of zero to six. She had this very happy childhood. And then she went to Germany. And then basically, that's all she ever said, which was very incomplete and not completely accurate. But my mother, in contrast, so I'm one of seven children. And my mother has always shared with all of us her history. And when I was in my 20s, she began to ask me to record her story. So uh, over the course of the last 30 years, I've been researching my mother's story and her mother's story. And so I've, I've developed my uh, book to reflect this dual timeline. So the first narrative, if you will, the first timeline begins with me in my 20s and me talking to my mother. And, and then it, it um, then sort of progresses over the next 30 years where I'm interacting with my mother and you're beginning to see the effect of the trauma on my mother in her adult years. And then the second part of the uh, story, which is um, each chapter is divided into two. So the second part of each chapter is this maternal history, which is really kind of a historic fiction. And that begins with the birth of my illegitimate grandmother in 1904 and then goes up to present day. So at the end, the two narratives merge. And what one sees is that my grandmother endured adverse childhood experiences, complex trauma of her own, which was actually a separation with her own mother and endured world war. And then you see with my mother, the exact same kind of pattern of, of trauma. So you see two generations of trauma. And then Third of all, it's me trying to deal with my mother who carries this trauma. And obviously, there's some effect on me. You know, there is a certain inheritability of, of the effects of trauma. And so you, there have been studies, for example, on, on mice. And you can see behaviors that the mother um, exhibits as a result of trauma are actually passed on to the next generation so the, man, the expression of the genes, if you will, are, are altered because of a preceding trauma. So I thought it was really important to look at generations of women and to see the impact of trauma on those women. And that's why I established my, my book the way that I've established it. I've also, I really wanted to share uh, history through a female lens so um, I really wanted to talk about, for example, World War II, not men on a battlefield being shot, but what was happening to the women during this time? How were they experiencing that trauma? And I also wanted to make sure that this history was felt and not just reported. Um, so that re required me to use my imagination. I had to try to, in my book, I've got a lot of different voices, and I tried to, to kind of inhabit these characters, if you will. So I could share what I think they may have felt. Um, and then lastly, what was important for me was to be able to establish a personal connection, because I think in order to understand history and its impact, we really have to um, create some kind of connection. And, and so that for me, by sharing these lives of these women, I thought rather than just saying, you know, 1914, World War II, Lusitania sunk, I, I'm sorry, World War I, um, I, I wanted to really allow us to inhabit that a little bit and feel it. 
Um, so therefore, when people read my book, they might say, oh, goodness, you know, I have a connection there. Uh, uh, maybe that's how my grandmother felt or 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 this maybe later on in later chapters, um, you see the impact, you see the mother who my mother who is struggling, they might say to themselves, oh, gosh, my my mother was a Holocaust survivor. And now I understand a little bit more about what she may be feeling or why she is the way she is. So that personal connection was really important to me as well. I really appreciated the ability for me to feel as though I was able to be invited maybe behind some curtain that I might not, like you can't, can't pop open most history books and get these kinds of stories. And, um, and it is a, it's a very female book. I, I, and I, I loved that. I loved the fact that it was told through uh, women's voices. I felt like, um, it felt like the kind of thing that I enjoy most out of, out of, out of reading any book, which is to get something that I can't get through walking around the world on my own and just perceiving things. Um, I really, really appreciated that. And um, I just wanted to, so I thought that was oh, worth thank mentioning. You. Um, thank you. I, actually, I, Ada, I, I, part of me thinks, oh my goodness, is a man going to enjoy this book? Because they are female voices. So it, I, I am grateful and appreciative of the fact that you were able to connect to it at some level, even though it's a book of female voices. Well, it's, it's particularly important. I am in a household with uh, three females. Uh, it's just it's just <laughs> four of us, and uh, it's quite imperative that that I have a deep interest in female <laughs> voices. <laughs> um, so as you know, I'm in the field of learning. I work in online learning design. And in thinking about what this is now, and I think we are in a, in a moment where what learning is, is is changing rapidly all the time. Nobody knows where it's going. But I think that our uh, thinking about what a learning experience is, I think, has to expand. The The lens has to get wider. It can't just be well, it's the content, you get the content, and then you take a test and you're done. It's, it's bigger, it's much bigger than that. And we know that now because, like you said at the beginning, there are, are lots of kids who aren't at school. They get support at school. That is actually part of their learning experience. So I've been thinking constantly about mental health and the kinds of long-term effects that the pandemic might have. Yep. I, I'm curious, what did you learn from writing this book that, that the reader can learn and take away as we, all of us, wrestle with the potential impacts of this moment right now? So I, well, I learned, I learned a lot. First of all, I learned um, quite a lot about me as a parent. Uh, there's a line that I have in my book where I talk about uh, often we we talk about the lucky circumstances of our birth, but there's also the lucky circumstances of our parenting. And um, I may get emotional here <laughs> just to warn you, but um, I think of um, parenting and 
lucky me, right? I, I actually, what I mentioned before, the ACE, the Adverse Childhood Experiences, the CDC did a big report in the 1990s, uh, or a study, and then they've recently done a report where, where you look at um, how many adverse childhood experiences have, have you exhibited um, there's a quiz where you can t- you can take that and it's out of 10 points. I take that, I get a zero. I think if my mother were to take that quiz, she'd probably get a five or a six. So my mother went into parenting, having had no childhood, not having attached, having really to have been a, a parent at age three, because at age three in the Second World War, she was in, in um involved in something called Operation Pied Piper. She's English. And she was put on a train up to Wales, age three, with her one and a half year old brother, because the British government said, listen, it's not safe for children in London. Her mother, meanwhile, was being interned in Holland. Um, So she, age of three on, she had this itinerant childhood where she just moved from foster home to foster home. And she looked after her little brother, who was one and a half, and she never really lived at home again. And I mean, you can imagine that's a very, that's complex trauma. And yet my mother was able to raise seven children and we're all reasonably well-adjusted, well-educated. And, and that's, that's amazing. That's heroic. And, and I think that initially when I was looking at this book, I, I didn't say to myself, um, when I first started writing it, my mom's a hero, but she is, she overcame really complex trauma and no experience with being a parent. And then she was able to parent despite that, which I think is just phenomenal. And then, so when I look at myself, I think, wow, the lucky circumstances of my parenting. So when I'm parenting my children, well, they're not really children anymore. They're quite old, but my youngest is uh, 20 and my eldest is 24. So I'm not really parenting anymore. Um, But still, when I look at them, I think, how lucky are they as well, right? Because they have a parent who has not endured this. So, and I've had a good parent myself. Um, never mind everything else, i.e., I, I, we're not struggling for food, we've got a secure home and all the rest of it. Um, so, one thing I learned is <laughs> it kind of makes me frame things a little bit better with respect to any trials and tribulations that we face. I mean, I, I have, I have what I need to get through this and my children have what they need to get through this. Um, there are so many other people out there who need more support right now because they haven't been as well equipped and, you know, thank goodness for my mother for finding a way to give that to us despite what she endured. So that's, that's really a big takeaway for me. Um, from this work and and also i think developing a level of empathy for my mother and and i hope developing more empathy for those people around me who are exhibiting certain behaviors for me to step back and say well there's probably a reason behind those behaviors and that doesn't mean that that that's the person that is the mask of trauma if you will which again the lionheart foundation refers to going to pause for a second on the word empathy. It's, it's actually something that across these podcasts has come up a lot. This notion of we're in this, we're in this moment and 
we all have um, our own things that we're dealing with personally. And when we're thinking about doing something for other people, empathy is always an ingredient, a necessary ingredient. But I think the the importance of it um, is really uh, going up now. Because even if we, even if we maybe perhaps even mistakenly thought we we can understand other people <laughs> readily, I think that's just even much less true now. Um, so I I just really deeply appreciate that. I know you have one more passage um, that we talked about. I'd love to hear that. Uh, I'd love to take. I'd love for you to take us out um, with that passage, uh, if you might. Sure. So um, just to give you kind of a little setup beforehand, this proceeds, as I mentioned before, each chapter is set up where it's my relationship with my mother. And then afterwards, um, the the 1905 kind of historical narrative, which will begins in actually 1904 and then moves ahead. So this proceeds, this chapter proceeds the passage that I just had read earlier. Um, and bearing in mind that uh, in researching my family history, I discover that this heirloom, if you will, this this story that my grandmother always gave my mother that she had this happy childhood until six and then World War uh, One happened and everything changed. She always omitted the fact that she was picked up by her, her, her she went back to her biological mother and lived in abject poverty for four years. And that was just one of, of many secrets that my grandmother never shared with my mother. Uh, a big one being that she was illegitimate. She never shared that with my mother as well. In contrast to my mother, who was sharing her past with us all the time growing up to the point where sometimes I just thought, oh my goodness, could, could you just stop? So, um, so anyway, so just understanding that this is, that's the preface to this chapter. And so I'll, I'll read you a few chapter, a few paragraphs from that, from this part of the chapter. Um, and there are a couple points where I, I'll just kind of skip through so you can get to the larger meaning. Um, on discovering through online census research that my grandmother Violet, age six, joined Anna in London's East End slums, I know for certain that Violet's tale of the happy Rickmansworth childhood that she always shared with my mother and that my mother so cherishes seems to be, while not exactly a lie, a deception of sorts. I am in my mid-40s by this point with a husband and three children whom we have been trying our best to raise. I often make parenting mistakes. I give my children what I deem to be answers then when they would be better served learning the answers themselves. I too often try to make their challenges my own, to spare them from hurt, and to carry their pain. I sometimes protect them too much and in so doing, don't promote resilience as I could. At other times, I don't listen to them enough. I'm apt to criticize myself for the parenting decisions I do or don't make, but I also know that parenting can be difficult and that at the same time, it provides me reason to get up, to make my bed, to lay a meal, to come home, to see in my children their joy or their kindness or that pride that comes with accomplishment that is a serotonin greater than I have otherwise known. I know I often get parenting wrong. 
The seminal parenting moment came for me long ago during the hospital's parent education session for new mothers after I delivered my firstborn. I was sitting uncomfortably on a plastic chair in my paper blue robe with, a vag- with vaginal stitches from an emergency episiotomy to my anus, while a deceptively equanimous lactation nurse explained to all us mothers how to hold an infant so the baby's mouth could latch onto the entire areola, how not to force, how to let the attachment happen naturally. There was no mention of the fact that my nipples would soon crust and bleed, of how painful the process would be. Nothing about how it might not work out. But then the nurse informed us that we might not succeed in getting our babies to attach and that this failure would mark the start of all that we got wrong as parents, of the questions we would not be able to answer, of the solutions we would not find. When she finished, the successful parenting lore I'd been fed suddenly seemed exposed as an expedient and well-propagated lie. Rather than be relieved, I was angry. Out of nowhere, I had just been informed that it was, in fact, not a given that my children would attach to my breast or that I would be a successful parent. Admittedly, I knew I was somewhat complicit, pink and glowing and expectant and naive. I had blithely accepted the messaging given to me, how simple breathing during labor could mitigate the pain, how during contractions we needed only to pause until the air seemed to want to come into the body, and how once the contractions became more intense, we needed only to breathe lightly and shallowly with long exhales of whoos and paws, like some sort of happily laboring Oompa Loompa on a hospital delivery bed. Even after the birth with my sweet baby daughter cradled to my breast, the most beautiful baby the nurse had ever seen. Did you hear that, Lucin? Do you think it's really true? I too was content to erase from my mind the vomiting from the pain, the hemorrhaging, the doctors rushing in, the husband sent out, the passing belief that I might die, and the wish that the effing morphine would never stop. I'm under no false illusions about parenting now. I have long since dispelled that myth of perfect parenting. I sometimes tell my children that I parent like a machine gun, shooting bullets in the hope that one carries a small shard of something sage. I know the metaphor is not ideal, but it's the only one that seems to resonate with them having been reared by their father on super soakers and airsoft guns and introduced to that video game Halo way too young. It's not that I don't try. When I talk to them, I use recommended parenting catchphrases like smart choices and positive sense of self. I am quick to sandwich criticism with healthy slices of praise. I remind myself that happiness, sadness, anger, and fear are what they are supposed to feel. I have even skimmed the book, The Blessings of a Skin Knee. But all that knowledge does not mean I often don't lie awake at night worrying about what I can to make their latest disappointment less, sorry, worrying about what I can say to make their latest disappointment less painful or perseverating over my latest and greatest parenting mistake, which often stems from providing too much. And then I think about Violet's hardships and how they were so much greater than mine. Parenting from birth is difficult enough, never mind having to begin or abandon parenthood when your child is six. Perhaps I did suggest my 12-year-old son was fat. Perhaps I'm responsible for a deformation in my other son's rib. Perhaps encouraging my recalcitrant 16-year-old daughter to date when she had fallen out of life was a bad course for her. But I have had the privilege of being able to make those parenting mistakes. My children have never been deprived of a parent nor have I been deprived of my children. 
We have not had to suffer the long-term effects of mother-childhood separation on mental health that can persist long into adulthood. I've been able to be present for my children as they work through their anger with me. We, we so often talk about the lucky circumstances of our birth. There also exists the lucky circumstances of our parenting. Violet and my mother were deprived of predictable, consistent, and supportive environments and relationships in their youth that research says can help you learn to cope, and the repercussions of which would manifest in later life in myriad ways more than both. Thank you for sharing something so personal. I, you said you were getting emotional earlier. I think I am getting maybe a little emotional right, right now. I think parenting is, is unbelievably challenging. And we're often told it shouldn't be. And um, uh, I've certainly heard that message many, many times. Um, Myself and I know that I know that my uh, my wife uh, so so much of what's what's in here I could just picture her nodding along uh, as you read. I I really I really do appreciate the the kind of empathy actually to go back to that word um, in the book um, as a whole. I think it I think. It's an incredible, um, incredible work of empathy in thinking about um, the people who have come before you have had a had a hand either directly or or indirectly um, in who you are and who your children are, and um, and it gave me a lot to think about in my own life. So thank you so much for all of that. Um, and. I, I, I just want to say again, I mean, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I have just really appreciated the book. I've really appreciated this conversation. And I just thank you very much. And, and I just thank you for, for having me on. It's a pretty unconventional podcast, sort of reading about a book. Um, but hmm. I feel really strongly that um, we need to continue to have dialogues about mental health. And we particularly need to have dialogue about mental health as concerns children. And I think there's a strong movement now in, in the U.S. or a growing movement that we need to be addressing children's mental health. And I think that with COVID-19 um, and uh, just the general kind of atmosphere and environment right now with a, a lot of uh, unrest, that... Um, it's really so evident that we need to be having these conversations about children's mental health. And I hope that now that there are a lot of trauma-informed practices out there, uh, which can help to repair, um, that we continue to try to develop those and use those with children so that they don't have the long-term effects um, that so many adults of of the generation which preceded us carry with them. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to our show. I want to thank Elizabeth Wilcox again for sharing her past in this great book and for the fantastic conversation. My name is Jason Gorman. 
I'm the host of this podcast and the founder of Jackrabbit Learning Experience. If you have an idea for an episode, want to give feedback or anything else, send me a note at imperfectmap at jackrabbitlx.com. I'll see you next time. And until then, stay safe and keep inventing.